Welcome back to the Sunday Long Read Podcast. My name is Don Van Natta. This week, our guest is Ben Smith. He's the editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed. He previously worked at Politico and was also a stringer for the Wall Street Journal in Eastern Europe. His work was also featured in the New York Daily News, the New York Times, the Telegraph, and the BBC. And recently, Ben was kind enough to be a guest editor of the Sunday Long Read newsletter. Ben, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me on. Greatly appreciate it. So you've made a career out of writing about politics. Why do you like to write about it? You know, I, it's changed through the years. I think I used to like to write about politics because <laughs> political reporting is is more than any other kind of reporting, or maybe just more obviously than any kind of reporting, totally interwoven in the fabric of what you cover. Um, right. you know, it, po- politicians, less now than they used to, but still largely live entirely through the media, only exist if you write about them. And the stories that journalists write about politicians make and break their careers. And facts it you know political facts are perceptions are things that exist largely in the media and so there's this it's it's very confusing and difficult and compromised and interesting and i would say that that's true of reporting at its highest level on most beats that the reporting is itself interwoven into the thing it's covering more than a lot of reporters are comfortable with but i think it's most obvious in politics now you grew up with an attorney for a father did the life of being a lawyer or working in law ever entice you, even for a moment? You know, I've always been obsessed with the law and enjoyed it and yeah, grew up around lawyers. Um, my sister's a lawyer. I, you know, I think I probably didn't want to compete with my father. I felt like he was a very good lawyer. Really? So that was part of what kept you out of it? Yeah, probably. Probably. I mean, I felt like I would have failed to compete, you know, so right. I to, we had, to, had to find an easier line of work. One of your first ever professional jobs was with the Baltic Times in Latvia. What made you want to move to Latvia to be a reporter? So this was after college, I went to work for the Indianapolis Star. And while I was there, I was sort of looking for my next thing. And it was 1999. And everybody, at least young, young Americans of a certain milieu, wanted to live in Prague. That was the hot place. There's a great novel by Arthur Phillips called Prague about that era, and it's a, actually set in Budapest, and it's a bunch of young expatriates who want to move to Prague. But And so I had actually studied Czech in college, and I really wanted to move to Prague, and I applied for jobs at the Prague Post, which was the hot English language weekly in Prague, and the Prague <laughs> and the Prague Business Journal, and actually spoke some Czech, like that should have been a qualification, but I didn't realize the way you get those jobs is you just show up and start writing. I imagined that you like applied through the website. Um, and so did not hear at all and then applied for jobs in Warsaw because it seemed like the next best thing and nobody even got back to me and finally saw a job listing for a job in Riga, Latvia. And just because, yeah, again, I thought that the way you got jobs like that was you <laughs> sent it, your, you mailed your resume, which I don't think has ever really been how you get kind of like low level foreign stringing jobs. And so I, but I guess it was in, in, there was not a lot of applications to write for the Baltic Times on a pay of, I think it was like 200 lats a month, which was not that much. And they would pay your one-way ticket to Latvia. And if you stayed a year, they'd pay the return, but nobody ever did. How much is that in US dollars? Probably 400 bucks a month at that point. Wow. But, wow. you know, cost of living was low. Right. And, 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 and you had to free, and you would free, and you freelance, and you freelanced for dollars, and Lloyd's List played, played pretty well. There was a lot of shipping news out there. How long were you there? Just a few months. I started stringing for the journal, I started freelancing for the Wall Street Journal Europe. And um, and and picked up a uh, picked up that string, as they said. And how did that opportunity present itself? Um, you know, I was calling every editor I knew to connect me with other editors they knew, and 
through a series of those had got you know gotten in touch with an editor there and started started writing. I'd been a summer intern at the Jewish Forward in New York, and that was a and you know how these things they, right. And in fact, there is this you, you, right, and that kind of connection is very useful. Right, and you also met your wife in Latvia, isn't that right? I did. She was working for the World Bank when I was working for the Baltic Times. Okay, and was she a source, or was she somebody you met some other way? Uh, you know, I, I, try, I had tried to make her a source, and she was always, <laughs> to, she to this day won't tell me internal World Bank business from that really? time. Yeah, there's a Chinese wall between. She's, she's, she's very, she's very, she's become a journalist actually, but she's very, she remains very discreet. Oh, I love that. Uh, now, your son Hugo was interviewed by Slate about you and your wife's work-life balance while maintaining a family. Your son is very sharp, by the way. What's your relationship like with your kids while maintaining your own work-life balance? Um, you know, you know, my colleague uh, Dow Wynn, our publisher, once said, you know, there's no the, 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 there's no such thing as work-life balance. There are only trade-offs. Um, you know, and I think you know we all struggle to make them and wish we were spending more time with our kids and wish we were working more. And I think I do think he he actually said I can't believe I'm quoting my son from a Slate interview, <laughs> but he said he said something about how Leanna and I like we like our jobs and we're really engaged in our jobs and and that like even I guess even when we're neglecting them, they sort of appreciate that. Yeah, I asked you about that because I have two daughters. My, my oldest daughter now is at Boston University. She's a freshman, and my, my youngest daughter's a junior in high school. And, you know, when I, I was at the New York Times, I was working 80, 90, 100 hours a week, and there was large stretches of their childhood I missed. I mean, I could still remember my daughter when I was like 10. I was on Twitter, and she came up to me, and she said, Twitter? I thought so. You know, and, and it breaks my yeah. heart to think about that, you know. Um, but it's the sacrifice we have to make in this business, right? I mean, you, you, there's going to be parts of our kids' childhoods that we're just going to miss, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, I was, mine, I was probably the most absent during, when I was covering campaigns. I mean, I work, you know, I work pretty long hours at home and at the office right. in, in New York. But but when you're on the road, it's it's different and you're really absent. Yeah, I just I just ran into actually an old spokesperson for Hillary Clinton who she and I remember she and I were reminiscing about being, you know, hanging out in Iowa, being totally miserable because we were missing our kids. <laughs> yeah, and your son is on Twitter, is he not? At a very young age, you know, like like a lot of the youngs, he's sort of I, th he's, I think he's on Twitter, but Instagram is where they're hanging out these days. Yes, yeah. and I'm trying, I'm try I, I keep trying to suss out whether the Instagram account that I'm following is really the real one or if there's another one. <laughs> So you're investigating whether yeah whether yeah. whether they have finstas and whether I want to know right right I want to talk to you about Politico that's where I first uh, actually met you you may not remember this Ben but back in 2007 when I co-authored a book called Her Way about Hillary Clinton uh, you interviewed me for a piece that you did which was actually maybe the smartest story anybody wrote about our book do you remember this piece do you know what I'm talking about I remember the book I don't remember what I don't remember my uh... The headline, you know. of, the headline of your story that you wrote about our book is How to Kill a Book in Three Easy Steps. And you wrote about how the Clinton campaign in 2007 basically killed our book. Uh, they right, leaked, right. Remember, they leaked it to the Washington Post. Uh, and then they basically, you know, over the Memorial Day weekend, and then within a couple days, all the news in our book was old news. And Philip Raines, the Clinton spokesman, had the very famous quote, is it possible to be quoted yawning? 
yep. about our book. Uh, and anyway, you th- that's how I first met you, and I, I was very impressed with just how smart that story was. Mm. Um, you did you were so prolific at Politico. I was going back and looking at some of your work. You were writing constantly, like every few minutes. You were yeah. You know, I mean, a, but there a were these charge th- blogger. Basically. There were these things called blogs back in the day that we'll have to tell the kids about. Um, <laughs> But yeah, you know, it was, it was great. I didn't have, you know, I didn't have an editor. It was the best. Um, yeah, and I think, you know, you get yourself, for there was a time when, when there, you know, the, basically pre-Twitter, when information was flying around between campaigns and among campaigns, and a handful of reporters who had blogs, of whom I was one, were kind of the intermediaries and, and the gatekeepers. And so you had readers hitting refresh over and over and over on the site because they were obsessed at that point with the Obama campaign mostly. And, you know, and, and the campaign staff totally mesmerized by this centralized media conversation, the way that people are by Twitter now. So there was, there was a lot of, it was, it was a lot of fun. And when you didn't have an editor, you mentioned that, I mean, did you ever feel as if you were, you know, walking on a tightrope without a net? You know, I, I had been doing it for a while. I started a political blog in New York in 04, and I think was sort of used to it. And I liked, I mean, the fact I would both, you know, I've never been, I've always been a little prone to typos. And like every other reporter, occasionally make substantive mistakes. And I think had, when you have this very close relationship with your audience, like particularly in local reporting, not not like an abstract close relationship with your audience, like you actually know who the people are and have had drinks with them largely they you know they you write something wrong and within three minutes somebody calls you and says hey idiot this is wrong and you correct it in a way that's totally transparent and normal and doesn't feel like some ritualized a note is going into your file newspaper correction and you know when somebody right emails you hey moron you spelled this thing wrong you're like thank you you know it's, it saves on saves on copy editing um and so i think i was used to that very transparent ecosystem and and didn't and like and i've always liked it i i think you know the internet has matured and I wouldn't, and we don't, you know, I, we have editors and a copy desk and we should, but in that moment it was, it felt like the right, the right sort of speed of that conversation. And, you know, I don't think, I think I felt the way people who are comfortable on Twitter feel about Twitter, not that you're operating without a net, but that like you're having a conversation. Well, yeah, you were certainly a pioneer of that, of that type of communication for sure. Because I remember, you know, obviously before Twitter was even invented, bloggers like you, really, it was just the metabolism that you needed uh, to write as frequently as you did. You know, somebody like me doing investigative reporting, I would take three, six, three to six months to do a story and you were writing, you know, what, 50 a day, 30 a day? Probably, probably, probably 15. I felt like three was the table stakes. Like if you didn't write three a day, you might be dead. Like people would start to comment (laughs) on your blog, are you dead? Um, But 15 was sort of the average. But I probably, probably seven was the average and I do 15 or 20 some days. Wow. But again, like almost think of them like tweets. Yeah, but they were longer than tweets. Yeah, but they they didn't need to be mostly. Really? I mean, uh, yeah, my philosophy on a blog item was always you could only have one idea. If you had more than one idea, one point to make, then you go write a story. Was there a whopper that you, a mistake that you made, Ben, w- without having that editor to, to help you that you look back on and regret? The biggest mistake I made at Politico was one on a story where I did have an editor. Or at least I, t- I certainly talked to an editor about it. I got it. And it was a classic kind of mistake that journalists make, which is that I had a great source who was extremely well-placed in the John Edwards campaign, who had spoken to John Edwards not long earlier and had 
emerged from that conversation, I think, in earnest with the impression that John Edwards was dropping out of the race and told me that, told another reporter that. But I managed to get more attention to my story. And so I then ate the maximum shit when it turned out to be totally wrong. And I I think actually what I learned there was I immediately, immediately corrected fully and explained how it got it wrong and and thought that the audience was very forgiving for a honest mistake honestly owned up to. Do you think that there's a lot of that going on these days? I get the sense, just as a news consumer now that I'm on the sports side, that there is not enough transparency. There, there's there's a lot of sort of defensiveness, and you see it in an unvarnished way on Twitter whenever the audience says, well, this is a mistake, or you're biased. Uh, and it doesn't feel like a great moment um, for reporters with Twitter. I mean, Twitter kind of brings yeah. out the worst in people, doesn't it? You know, it's both. I mean, I think and it used to, there used to be more good faith voices on Twitter saying, hey, you made a mistake. Hey, I disagree with you. And you could, you would really, and I love engaging with people who think that you, you know, because sometimes, I mean, ultimately, if you've made a mistake and somebody, even if they're being a jerk about it, says, says, hey, asshole, you're a moron. You made this mistake. And they're right. The appropriate reaction is thank you. I mean, we are, you know, we should be getting things right. And if somebody is helping us get things right, we should be grateful to them, even if they're not being polite about it. I do think that as we, and maybe, you know, this is, the, the toxicity, there, the strains of toxicity were there and the abuse were there all along. But I think certainly around the 2016 campaign and the, there was a kind of professionalization of cynical trolling and of people, and, and, and you know, the Internet Research Agency was obviously part of this actually, but, right. yep. but of people who were not actually trying to make your work better and to correct you, but were trying to harass you. And you know the other and, thing, and, and you couldn't and you couldn't engage with and you and weren't there to be engaged with. And I think a lot of Ameri- you know, regular American citizens now att- approach information and politics that way now, and journalism. Yeah, there's certainly trolls, but but always the fastest way to disarm a critic, particularly as you point out, if they're right, is to just as you said, say thanks, respond. It's amazing how quickly someone is disarmed, even if they call you a complete idiot. Or a fuck up, or whatever. Yeah. If you if you come back at them with even a modicum of respect that they didn't give you, it's the best way to disarm anybody. Even a troll works with trolls too. Sometimes, but it's sometimes, but sometimes people's essential profession, like kind of their profession or the way they're crafting their own social media presence, is that they're the is is in the is by not honestly engaging the media, but by sort of like being at odds with the media and and treating the media as a sort of monolithic opposition. So some politicians even do that. And, that, and, that, and, and when it's that purely cynical, you can't, you know, they're playing a game that is, is almost, bears almost no relation to what you're writing. But don't you agree, Ben, that too many reporters get sucked into that and will engage with people that, are, that have just the worst impulses and are just really trying to suck in somebody who's a public figure, basically, a reporter into something. And some of these conversations just go off the rails and it doesn't, it doesn't look good for the media when you engage with people who are just out to hurt you. I mean, I think these are really complicated questions, actually. Like, I think it's, I think it's hard. And, and, and I think, you know, on one hand, the core thing that you have to figure out is whether somebody's in good faith or bad faith. And on the other hand, you can never really know that about someone. But but real I mean but and maybe from a more meta level though isn't Twitter just really a waste of your time when you think about it with it's so it's become so toxic as you said since 2016 you know why as a journalist would you engage with people who for the most part are out to get you I don't think for the most part they are I think for the most part people are trying to understand the world and figure it out just maybe the ones with the most energy are the ones who you know who are kind of professional trolls um, and and I do think Twitter love it or hate it 
and I mostly love it, is the um, is where news breaks. It's the it's the beating heart of news. It's the central vein of the news cycle. I mean, which is a poisoned, complicated, messy place. You know, news has always been a mess, but I think Twitter. What you know is just if you want to know what is happening in the world right now, you know, inclu- in, including but not limited to what the president of the United States is thinking and saying, it's a pretty good place to go. That's true. Um, what advice do you give your reporters on how they uh, deal with Twitter or how they how they interact with Twitter? Um, you know, I think my I think we try to you know be as transparent as we can to communicate in public as much as we can to, you know, to and I, and I think there's there's it's important that the people reading you kind of have a sense of who you are and what you're interested in, but also you should be and thus appear to be fair-minded and not partisan, which doesn't mean not having opinions on what's true and what's false, but means that a fair-minded person should be able to, you know, seeing your stories and your tweets and wherever else you live on social media to think, okay, this is a person who's going to be fair. I asked you before about uh, your biggest whopper uh, while at Politico. What's the story of Politico that you were that you are right now most proud of? That you look back on and really look at and say, "Well, I hit the, I hit that one out of the park." You know, it's interesting. The nature of I think beat reporting is that you're not writing for the ages; that it's conversational, that it's mm-hmm. in the moment, that you're not hanging it on the wall. You know, there are some features that I did. There's a profile of Richard Ben Kramer that I think about sometimes. That that I th- like was something that I was proud of. Um, the the writer. It's a great piece, but um, the story well. But actually, like you know, the stuff that I, uh, you know, some of the things that I found most engaging were really ephemeral. I mean, one of the stories that I love because it came so naturally out of having a kind of bloggy audience was a piece about um, an Obama campaign event in Michigan in '07, where a reader of mine had just e- called. I think emailed me something weird had happened. This guy I'd never met or heard of. Uh, I think a law student at Michigan or Michigan State had emailed me and said, hey, I don't know what to do about this, but I read your blog and I thought you'd be interested. And I had this really strange experience where I went with a friend and we were both law students wearing suits. And this woman who worked for Obama said, hey, would you sit on the riser behind the candidate? You know, because they want this shot of the candidate with a diverse group of people sitting behind them, looking, you know, engaged and young and energetic and whatever as part of the tableau. <laughs> and his friend who was Muslim said, yeah, can, can my sister sit with us? Like come along, and she was wearing a hijab, and suddenly the staffer's like, "Ah, uh, no, never mind. She can't be there." And then another friend of theirs, also a woman wearing a hijab, had had the same experience at the same event, and you know, and I reported it out, and it clearly happened. And Obama wound up calling them and apologizing. But it was a really interesting moment that felt like it forced people to, you know, engage these bubbling Islamophobia that has since become this central, central thread in in you know, and it was in American life, but was. Obama being sensitive to at that point the the sort of smear was that he was a secret Muslim, right? And yes. it just felt like it tapped a lot of that stuff. And also, I just like my favorite sources were always the ones who were just regular people who read me and called me up because they had stories and weren't didn't have any particular agenda. Just thought I'd be interested. Um, another story that I, that, I, that I mean, probably in a way, you know, the story you have that that has the most impact. Like who know, you know, it's not you don't really get to determine that in advance. But I certainly published a, an investigation of Rudy Giuliani that hit at a particular moment where I, I had gotten a tip and found with a freedom of information request that he had buried a bunch of the expenses that this was really a hot story. And God, it was probably late 07 um, or maybe early 08. And he was, he was at the top of the polls and I broke the story that he had 
when he was traveling to Long Island to visit his then girlfriend, his then secret girlfriend, that he had buried the costs for his police security in the records of a very, very obscure New York City agency called the New York City Loft Board. And it just, it just, I think it was probably more a straw that broke the camel's back than a devastating expose, but it reminded everyone of, you know, that he was not the sort of, that, that, that Rudy, that there was this great, he had this moment of kind of empathy on 9-11 that yeah. defined him for people. But that was a moment. That wasn't his career. And it, and it kind of brought the past tumbling back for him in a way that wound up, I think that was, the, that was probably the day before that was the peak of his campaign. Yeah. And, and you could argue maybe the peak of his public life because it's been all downhill since that moment that you broke that story about the loft. Left you the know, loft I'm, I, I'm not sure he's, I'm not sure the president's lawyer sees it that way, but who knows? Probably not, but uh, I think it's a reasonable uh, conclusion one could make in watching the arc of his career. Um, Obama becoming president is one of the most remarkable things to have happened in our lifetime. What was it like reporting on him just before he assumed the presidency and soon after? You know, his campaign was professionalized, mm-hmm. which by which I mean kind of slick and boring. You know, there was a, I always, there there was always a little bit of a gap between the real profound emotional authenticity of the movement and what was essentially a very professional democratic presidential campaign run out of its headquarters in Chicago. Um, I don't know. I mean, the the sense, the, the, the kind of emotional, and particularly in Iowa in the early days, the, the kind of, you know, there was, I mean... There was a, there was a real feel of a movement that wasn't ever totally never totally matched the cam- the who Obama was or the campaign itself actually like it wasn't run by movement people mm-hmm. but it felt but but there was a you know obviously this incredible kind of emotion and hopefulness around, about like what America could be that he in those prickly early days embodied and you know he attracted a lot of Republicans he was you know when he got elected he was at 75 percent for a little while and there was this sense of like this like this is oh this is like a path for the country and that like wherever this country is going it's like really changed profoundly oh, and particularly you know the funny thing that I you know that I kind of still can't believe is that the real big part of what that was was and his you know he had this line about turning the page which was fundamentally about a generational message and that we're turning the page on the baby boomers and then on their kind of insane civil wars over things that happened in the vietnam era that that obama and many of his supporters couldn't even quite figure out what or at least his supporters really didn't know what they were about and why people hated the clintons and why the clintons hated people and like who all these people were and why they hated each other and the fact that we then in the 2016 campaign were just like catapulted str- like back to the 1980s <laughs> it was is sort you know and, and like we're still essentially living under this like baby boomer dominated junta i mean i don't mean that i'm not describing the trump administration as a junta by the way i'm just saying that like there is this sense that like how is this generation still in charge Right, so the pages got turned back to before where Obama turned them, right? Yeah, I think Obama was technically the the last year born and technically the last year of the baby boom, but it sort of had a fundamentally kind of like Gen X slacker aesthetic, (laughs) and um, and it's just it's just I think that like so much of what that sense of change was generational, and it's just it's just really it was very strange to me to see it in the Clinton and Trump campaigns this sense that we're going to go generationally we're just gonna go right back 
Now, that slacker Gen X vibe um, of the Obama era, do you buy the criticism that some people make, and certainly people who like the president, that the, the media gave Obama a pass for eight years? You know, uh, no, I don't. I basically don't buy that. I mean, I think that that there there definitely were reporters who fell in love during the campaign. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I didn't. There were lots of reporters who didn't. But I think that there was like a, people who covering the movement got got swept up in it. I think you see that in lots of movements, including the you know including the Trump movement. It's hard to talk about the media as a whole. Like I think story by story, there were a lot of really negative stories about Obama. I wrote a lot of them. I don't think it's it were stories that they didn't want written. Now there were also stories that they didn't want written that didn't get written. Um, I mean, I know of one in particular that I saw when I was at the New York Times in the fall of 2008 about Resco that we had prepared and the Obama campaign killed it. So I mean, that was uh, a great like that. I mean, I like I mean, I guess you know maybe maybe I'm maybe I should just speak for myself because I don't I don't purport to be a spokesman for the media. But um, but I do think there's a level of conspiracy theorizing about this. Like for instance, I broke the story that he had you could say launched his campaign in the living room of Bill Ayers, who had been a domestic terrorist in the 60s. Um, The fact that I broke that story became like kind of problematic for some in the right-wing media because it it just didn't make sense that people who, that the kind of mainstream media, which they want to say is the left-wing enemy, would break a story like that. And so our friends at Breitbart developed this like extremely complicated theory that I was doing something that they called Ben Smithing, which involved breaking a story that wasn't favorable to the Democrats in order to, sorry, I'm speaking slowly because I want to get this right because it's complicated, in order to prevent Breitbart from exposing the same thing, but like with searing Breitbart truth that Politico could never bring to it. And it was so just in, like... So in, so in other words, you were, you were going to break it, but you were going to do it in a kind of fuzzy way, in a way that, in a way that wouldn't be searing and really harm Obama, right? I that guess the theory, I uh, that that was the theory, but fundamentally, like I broke a lot of these stories. Yeah, the re- and, and I actually, I actually, I totally agree with you that Rezco was undercovered. I mean, he yeah. right, he he had launched his career in ways that like were worth exploring. Like as a as a local politician, had like as like many many local urban politicians do here in New York City, and Bill De Blasio is deep in it right now. Right. Yep. With the help of the people who matter in local politics, who are mostly real estate guys who mostly want something from you. Ben, you covered New York City Hall with Maggie Haberman and Glenn Thrush while working with Politico. What lessons from that era did you learn that you've applied to your present day work at BuzzFeed? You know, I think it was mostly just I was I, I was in the basement of City Hall as a young reporter for the New York Sun, a conservative daily, and you know it was the first their first City Hall reporter. I had no idea what I was doing. And I was in the basement. There's this legendary press room, room nine, but it was totally full because there were still newspapers back then. And the New York Post had four or five people, and Maggie was either the fourth or the fifth, and Glenn was maybe the second or third reporter for Newsday, or maybe he was at Bloomberg then. But in any case, they were like the scrubs, right? And the real the grown-ups were upstairs, and I was working for like this no-name paper and was lucky to have gotten a desk in the basement room where like occasionally like squirrels would be running around and stuff. Um, and right, I think there was a guy from El Diario there the ninth reporter for the Daily News. And and, so, and I would happen to be sitting across from Maggie and Glenn and just thought, oh my God, you know, if these are the scrub reporters, imagine how good the reporters upstairs are. And, 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 and really, and particularly learned from Maggie, you know, just listening to her relentlessly calling people on the phone, working sources. And I think the thing about that I really learned from her was that her relationships with people aren't fake. 
you know, and, and, and aren't transactional in the sense that people imagine reporters have relationships. I mean, if somebody lied to her, she wouldn't pretend to be upset that they had lied to her. She would really be upset. And I think that's really important. And it's a real difference. This is all real. There's not some like second set of journalistic ethics and emotions that people have that this is all real and your emotions are real and your relationships are real. And if somebody lies to you, you should really be mad at them, not pretend for some transactional purpose. That's the best advice that you can uh, give to any young reporter is to be authentic, be yourself. Do not make these calls that you've got to make or interviews you do in person seem transactional. Uh, There are so many journalists, Ben, as you probably know, who do. They're transactional when they do interviews. They have a list of questions. It's not an organic conversation. They're not themselves. Uh, very few people do it the way Maggie does. No, she's uh, literally no. Maggie is the best do. reporter. I mean, she, she's yeah. she's just an incredible reporter. And, but she and, and I was really lucky to sort of just be exposed to that. And, and I mean, I was like, I, I mean, I didn't know you could talk to people that way. Ben, how did you end up at BuzzFeed? Um, I was at Politico in twenty, you know, from twenty two thousand and seven through twenty eleven, and and you know, writing this blog that for a while felt like just so connected to an audience that if I stepped away for a couple hours, people would start to email me asking if I was dead, and I felt like I had really like hundreds of regular random people across the country corresponding with me every day who I knew. It's really fun to know your audience that way, and have sources who just are regular people all overseeing stuff, and then you felt that whole conversation. And some, right, some of them political insiders and elites, some of them just regular people who are interested. Um, the, you could really feel that shift very dramatically. Probably after the, you know, in the 2008 election, the biggest account on Twitter was Barack Obama. He tweeted once. It was just like, please remember to vote. By the healthcare debate in 2010, we... Um, it really, it felt like Twitter had swallowed the political conversation and all my sources and readers had moved over there. It was really before you could see the traffic shift, mm-hmm. but like that conversation had moved to Twitter and it, and, in, and the blog went from being like this exciting central vein where I was fighting with these other bloggers in this centralized conversation to being kind of a repository for stuff that lived on Twitter. And so when Jonah Peretti approached me with this kind of big picture theoretical idea about social media and about content and about um, that's a word that still kind of sticks in my throat a little content um, and about um, and about stories spreading but because people share them I don't and, and he had built this quite already by then pretty su- successful website called BuzzFeed I think 30 million uniques a month at that point that was largely entertainment content that I'd seen on you know seen passed around occasionally but was not really particularly my thing at that time and I didn't really understand what they were doing but when he explained to me that it was sort of thinking about what is a website in a world where people share and that in his obviously accurate view, because he really was able to seize around corners, that news was going to start to spread that way. That kind of matched my experience as a, my much less abstract and theoretical experience as a reporter who was obsessed with Twitter. And what were your aspirations when you started and have, do you feel you've met them uh, six years later? You know, I think I just started thinking that if we broke news, that we could, and, and if we were, we, you know, we kind of treated, at that point, really treated Twitter as the front page and just tried to break news and break stories, that, that, that that's sort of the price of admission and that, and that we could cover the hell out of the 2012 campaign and have a real impact. And I don't, I didn't, I didn't, I think, think that much beyond that. I think as we got going, it seemed to me that there was an opportunity to do that on a number of, in particular on beats where legacy media had retreated, um, 
to tell to tell both new stories and to, and to tell the stories that were important that feel felt obviously important in the moment i mean in a way the 2013 marriage equality story was one where i think the sort of traditional media was just like structurally not ready to see that as the biggest story in the country which it clearly was and we were able to really own it um so to see both these kind of new stories and then to to, to be kind of agnostic about form and cover them where in whatever way was was best suited to covering them whether that's a you know 20,000 word article because we'd often some occasion will go way longer than you would ever see in a newspaper or magazine um or whether that's a tweet and just leave it at the tweet which is a great way to cover like a you know house leadership fight um for the 200 people 200 people who are very very interested (laughs) um you know i think i think that was that that was sort of the dual motivation that we could take kind of the values that we'd all grown up you know trying to break stories and tell them well but then make sure we were telling the stories that mattered now and in the forms that, that made sense now. You said in the newsletter when you uh, guest edited a couple of weeks ago that uh, when people come and look for jobs and they say they want to write long form, you know, you don't want to hear that. Um, you want to hear what they want to cover. And, and I, I loved how you said that because as you said earlier, you know, the word content sticks in your throat. There's something kind of precious about that. There's also something precious about long form. It really is just you got to do the story at whatever length it deserves, right? And, and that's something I've been really impressed by about BuzzFeed is that the, the pieces that you guys do that where you really do deep dives, every single word is necessary. Um, and talk a little bit about the ethos of that uh, at BuzzFeed and how you feel about it and why you hate the terms like long form, long form and content. Well, maybe for different reasons. Content, just because it's this sort of like, it's just this sort of homogenizing word for for lots of different kinds of media that doesn't have that much in common um and commoditizes it the uh but no long i mean i think yeah as you said my my problem with i mean i I read a lot of long articles but i but it's in spite of the fact that they're long not because i'm just like looking for random piles of words and i do think that you know in print an editor could always say to you you know that 900 word digression about your grandmother is really, really wonderful and moving, but unfortunately we just sold an ad on page seven and so we're going to have to cut it because there's not any, because re- we lost column four. And it, on the internet, you lose, like editors kind of lost that excuse. And so if you're not careful and you don't want to be confrontational with your writer, you just let it go long without any thought to the reader and without any sense of like a pressure to say, okay, you have three pieces here. We're only, you know, this article... Let's just let's just use the two best ones and leave the third one out. Like, which is the is a nine thousand word piece? Which are the best six thousand words? And does it really need to be more? Um, and I think I think we do a pretty good job of being respectful of the reader in that way. But I think actually it's hard as an editor working online to not have to, to not have arbitrary constraints to into which to fit your your writing. What do you like best about being an editor, Ben? And what do you like least about it? You know, I mean, I guess it's always, it's it's like an incredible luxury to bask in the reflected glory of work that other people are fundamentally doing and that, you know, frontline reporters and also people who have figured out how to like distribute stories online and, who I, and, and just to work with. I mean, I think the thing I like best is hiring and working with incredibly talented people and getting to share in some small way in their success. What do I like least? I don't know, meetings. There's nonstop meetings, right? Don't no, we don't. I don't. We don't do that many meetings. But oh, you yeah. don't. Yeah. No, I was a player coach at the New York Times for one year. It was 2008. I was writing stories, and I was also an editor. And I felt like I was in meetings all day, just all day. Felt like I was chained to a desk. Hated it. Never wanted to do it again. 
but if you have a place where you don't have to go to too many meetings, then then be, you know being an editor can be fun. But you also, as an editor, have to, as you said, you have to sort of you know uh, live vicariously through your reporters, right? You're giving up the byline, you're giving up the glory of being the frontline person. Did you find that hard? Did you find that hard when you when you made the transition? You know, uh, yeah. I mean, I think I once were I, when I was at the New York Sun, a colleague of mine once said. You know, you know, well, you know, well, you know. There's this line that this is not a quote, but you know, reporters are all shy egomaniacs. Yes. Um, and this, I remember one very shy reporter once said to me that he was thinking of leaving journalism, but that he just wasn't sure if he could take it because you know, no byline, no me. Um, <laughs> it's really always kind of stuck with me. <laughs> and, um, and and by the way, the other phrase is that uh, reporters are also insecure over achievers. That's the other. <laughs> that's the other phrase I love. <laughs> Who among us? Um, yes, that's and right. but I think that um, yeah. And so I think that I did, was surprised by how fun and rewarding it was to you know, work with this really diverse array of young reporters and old reporters and like try to make stuff a little better. And, and it's like, it's incredibly exciting to see, you know, ultimately people are succeeding on their own terms and the best reporters, you know, can have, can you, a good editor can help, but they get the credit. And, but it's just like incredibly gratifying to play a small part in somebody, you know, just nailing a huge story and maybe transforming their career. That's so cool. Um, as you know, you guys drew big headlines for publishing the Trump-Russia dossier. You got criticism from places like the New York Times and NBC News for publishing it without verification. What was the thinking behind it? I know you've written about it, but I'd love for you to tell our listeners, you know, what was the rationale for publishing the report? Sure. We, you know, we, we had, like other news organizations, we had been looking into we had gotten a hold of this document and that which was the subject already we, as we now know of serious federal investigations and had been looking into the allegations in it and it had, had had conversations about okay like at what point would the document itself be news but we weren't you know we weren't on the brink of publishing it when cnn reported that it had been briefed to the president and the president-elect of the united states you know, two presidents which is about as and and that it was the subject of this incredibly high stakes fight, some of which we already knew inside the intelligence community that it was being pa- and we as we knew being passed around by mm-hmm. Washington elites of all sorts and really shaping the American conversation. And so I think at that point, it was pretty clear to to me and to us that you know that this was the dossier was like the, it's not the specific claims in it, but the document itself was news. And so we published it, you know, we with with caveats. Um, but I think it was, I think, you know, at the time it was a little controversial. I'm not sure the Times and NBC News actually criticized it. I think they kind of raised one eyebrow each. Um, but I think a year later, two years later, no one, like, I, 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 I think that I'm not sure if any of those people would now say they think it was a bad decision. I think it would have been impossible to understand the succeeding year if you didn't know about it. If you were saying, well, there's this document that's causing Devin Nunes and Adam Schiff to have this incredibly high profile and high stakes fight, but we're not going to tell you what it's about. I mean, it would have been really impossible to figure out what the hell was going on for much of the last couple of years. So I, that's, that's, I, a, that's a good point. No, I agree with that. And, and behind the scenes, did you have journalists telling you at the time from um, rival publications that they were glad that you had published it because the genie was out of the bottle? You know, I think everybody who had it and didn't publish it was justifying that decision to some degree. Yeah. But no, but I, yeah, I think, they, I mean, I think there were really mixed opinions, but it was, I mean, I think a lot of people who I respect right out of like, you know, Jill Abramson, people, uh, various yes. others right out of the gate thought it was a pretty good decision. 
Donald Trump, of course, tweeted about you, uh, I think, a day or two after the report or the dossier was published. How did you feel seeing your name as a subject of one of the president's tweets? Um, you know, actually, the thing that I really remember was when he, he during the press conference, where, as he often does, he kind of came in, it seemed like he was going to be sort of statesmanlike, and then suddenly kind of like gets you know increasingly focused and called us a failing pile of garbage. So that that was I don't know kind of a really you know an interesting moment. I mean I think I don't know I don't, I don't think that anybody at this point is always persuaded by his descriptions of reality. After Donald Trump is no longer president, will people still care about politics the way they do today? You mean during the Ivanka presidency in the twenty thirties? <laughs> Yes, I don't that's know. Exactly I, you know, what, I, that's exactly what I meant by that a, question. A, a, after the election, uh, <laughs> Catherine Miller, our political edi- my, uh, editor, and I just made a deal to not make any more predictions. So I'm not making any predictions. Well, Ben, thank you so much for joining me on the Sunday Long Read podcast. I greatly appreciate it, and much continued success. Thank you for having me on. This week, our guest Ben Smith, the editor in chief of BuzzFeed. He's previously worked at Politico and many other places. I want to thank him for guest curating the newsletter. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, he did a fantastic job with that as well. This is the Sunday Long Read podcast. It is a first cousin of the Sunday Long Read newsletter. Every Sunday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern time, the Sunday Long Read drops in your inbox. We are still free with the best long-form journalism of the previous week. You can subscribe if you don't already subscribe at www.sundaylongread.com backslash subscribe. We have started a membership drive. I uh, highly urge you to become a member. Uh, You'll get the Sunday Long Read a little bit earlier. There'll be some other uh, great content that uh, will come your way. $4 a month, $32 a year. Uh, It will help us defray the cost of sending the newsletter and maintaining it, uh, as well as putting this podcast together. It'll also help us pay some freelancers for some original work. Uh, I want to thank Julian McKenzie, my producer for today's broadcast. He did a fantastic job, as always. We'll be back soon with another great guest here on the Sunday Lonely Podcast. I'm Don Van Natta. Thanks for listening. <laughs>